Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And I'm joined today by Ivan Asensio, Head of FX Risk Advisory at Silicon Valley Bank. Ivan, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ivan, I originally wanted to have you on the podcast to discuss a paper you published. And uh, I've obviously been a slow out of gate because in the time that I've been organizing this with you, you've managed to publish a second one. So uh, hopefully we'll try and cover both of those because I think they both cover some really interesting topics that I think and I hope will be of interest to people. But let's start off with the first one that you published earlier this year. Now, that paper was looking at, at managing currency risk prior to an equity raise. For the listeners who may not have encountered it yet, can you just describe sort of the high-level takeaways from this paper? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a busy time. So, yeah, we're getting a lot of stuff out there. As you know, FX Vol is back, right? So, oh, yeah, big time. Uh, yeah, so after many years of, you know, being absent. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely getting out there and, and advising clients and, uh, and delivering insights and, and actionable insights. So the paper that you are referring to is the first paper in a series that we're going to put out on FX and equity raises. So that was part one. So our aim is to bring awareness and structure to the potential impact that FX has on this multidimensional system that's got increasingly global, right? So maybe I'll zoom out a little bit and, and just kind of talk about the system itself. So it starts with the investors, right? So these are the limited partners. These are the pensions, the endowments, the retirees that are seeking venture investment. They can be anywhere in the world, right? So these LPs, they commit capital to the general partners, so the GPs, who are responsible for finding and managing the investments. So these are the venture and private equity funds, basically. So at, at SVB, we bank the GPs. We, we don't bank the LPs. I spend time, obviously, at HSBC and Maryland, and that's where we talk to that client base. We don't talk to those here at SVB. They can be anywhere in the world, but obviously there's going to be concentration in the major financial centers and in the tech hubs like Palo Alto and Boston. And then you have the last layer, which basically involves the startups and the early stage companies where the capital actually goes and they can be anywhere. So the system that I've described, right, involves, you know, the LP, the GP, the companies, and, you know, it's known as the venture cash flow waterfall involving players with different mandates different performance agendas, different philosophies, experience and awareness about FX, and even different abilities to absorb or ignore FX, which is something that happens quite a bit. So you can see how this is absolutely ripe for some thought leadership. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny. I remember one of the first times I was talking to a VC, drilling down into some of the stuff that they were doing, and they kept talking about LPs and obviously coming from the FX world. I was like, wait, why is he talking about liquidity providers in here? That doesn't right. make sense, right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> And I right. had to stop and be like, when you say LPs, what exactly do you mean? Listen, I've been at SVB five years, but I've spent my formative years in FX at shops that, that are not focused in this space. So I've had to learn a lot, actually. My learning curve has been very steep, just getting used to the jargon and the terminology and be focused on this space. So I get it, yeah. Yeah. So getting back to the paper then, how significant are some of the impacts of how you see some of the firms managing their currencies today? How big an impact can that have on the firm as they look to raise equity? You know, let's drill to this specific paper then. The, the first paper in the series, so my co-author, Lisa Gull, and I, she's uh, one of our sales leads that actually covers the venture and private equity funds from a sales perspective. 
we're looking at this problem first from the vantage point of the company, right? The founder and the operator. Uh, now, what's interesting is that seldom does the company, as you would imagine, selling shares to the funds, they don't determine what the currency denomination of the equity is, right? That's determined generally by, you know, what the currency of the fund is. So to give you an example, we bank a good number of UK-based firms, some who have reached unicorn status, who may raise domestically in the UK for early rounds, but then they go international looking for bigger checks naturally at, at the higher rounds. And then that means that they're raising in dollars then for the latter rounds. So they go international, not because, again, they're looking for dollars, but because, you know, they're looking for funding, right? Now, to the extent these companies have this capital earmarked for domestic UK or European expansion, the currency mismatch is going to exist day one. The longer the period of time between when you establish the price in dollars and closing of the transaction, the greater the adverse impact can be. So at the limit, IPO situations can take, you know, six to nine months to close. So you're going to have this implicit FX risk there, contingent, obviously, on the transaction closing, but it's going to be present naturally. Bottom line, potentially in the situation I just described, dollars raised do not go as far as you thought they would. So now to determine the size, we just tap into some traditional approaches that have been around FX markets for 40, 50 years. So long-term implied vol in, in FX for developed economy currencies, you know, let's call it 10%. Long-term, right? It's, it's yeah. sort of back nowadays, right? That's a one standard deviation move. So we sprinkle in some basic stats and we can assign probabilities to these currency mismatches and the associated potential losses. So at the fundraising stage, we have time horizons, which could be a few weeks all the way to a few months. So let's say over a three-month period, you can assign a chance at the purchasing power of those dollars, assuming they're earmarked for overseas expansion or non-dollar expansion. You know, that could fall by 5%, 5% on a three-month period or 20% annualized. That's material, right? That's not exactly yeah, yeah. small. And then obviously, once you're in, now you think about the investment from the fund level, from the perspective of the GP or the LP. Now we're talking multi-years, multi-year risk. And as you know, the, the risk then grows proportionately at the square root of time if we want to get exact. You make the case in the paper that, as you just explained, the FX piece can have a very material impact on these funds as they try and raise equities. But despite this, your paper also highlights that actually a lot of these firms spend far more time analyzing interest rates that they'll be earning on incoming capital rather than looking at the currency risk, despite the fact that, as you argue, the latter can actually have a much bigger impact than the former. Why do you think there is this kind of imbalance of where attention goes that doesn't actually match up to where the company is being financially impacted? Absolutely. And that hits near and dear to my heart, being a FX veteran, right? You, know, <laughs> you and I are FX veterans, right? You know, we, we, you know you've, you've been around it for at least 10, 20 years or so. I'm going to quote one of my colleagues, Kieran, who runs our sales desk for FX in the UK, who says, Treasuries focus on cash balances not necessarily cash movement. Yeah. So think about, you know, early stage companies raising money because you're not established, your revenue base isn't fully established yet. So you need a runway. That cash is meant to last you 12, 18, 24 months. So naturally, if it's sitting there, you know, you want to actually squeeze the yield on that as much as possible, right? And that's just prudent risk management to think about what the yield earn on that liquidity is going to be. 
that's easier to measure, easier to see because the cash is there. FX is one of these things, right? That the adverse move can be multiples on even the full interest that's earned on the cash. However, it is something that is less visible. It's less well understood and less straightforward to quantify, you know, but obviously we try, we try to bring that awareness and we're not saying it's mutually exclusive. You should think about both, but FX actually is a bigger piece of the pie, which can actually work to your favor, obviously. You know, and this year is an important year for companies that have raised dollars and are using those dollars to fund global operations. The dollar is way up, right? So we're seeing some of those runways be extended at the time that is most needed. Yeah. And touched on one or two points there that I want to kind of circle back to at the end of the podcast, which I think are kind of some overarching themes. As I looked through your your more recent report, now this one, there was one particular phrase that really caught my eye, where you talked about how a lot of your clients right now are shifting away from a growth at all costs mantra that has driven their business lately. And I wanted to ask you what you think the knock-on effects of this shift is with regards to currency management. And, And one of the reasons why this caught my eye was because I was actually having a conversation recently Now, not with a firm that was raising equity, but it was a technology firm, shall we say, that's based in the same neck of the woods as you either. And they were saying that they've seen it internally, their company is still growing, but the growth has slowed. And as it's slowed, now the focus has come on to, okay, where can we squeeze costs? Where can we reduce losses? And their complaint was when things were growing super fast, no one really cared if the FX wasn't as efficient as possible because the cost just got buried in the overall treasury costs and people had bigger things to find. They were looking at the top line number, not the bottom line, right? Now they said that shift is changing, that that from a a sort of selfish perspective, they were saying, I'm quite happy because now I get more attention focused on the FX piece and some of the stuff that I put in for budget and resources is beginning to get looked at more now because the growth has slowed, so we need to cut costs elsewhere. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on this kind of changing environment on currency management approaches. That's an important distinction to make that in that environment where it's growth at all costs and FX may not be managed as efficiently, you know, because it can be absorbed, if you will. I look at that as the perception of FX from the, the enterprise that you're talking about is viewed as being more of an operational type of exercise as opposed to a strategic. But in the new reality, which, you know, 2022, we've seen a repricing of risk assets across the board, equities, bonds, stress market conditions have derailed or delayed IPO plans for many companies, valuations down. And so we're seeing this focus. And in fact, you know, some venture funds are communicating to their portfolio companies that they should stop focusing on, you know, growth, 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 but really on proper prudent unit economics and reigning in expenses on the path towards profitability. So FX is an absolutely important lever to achieve this. And this year is a perfect example. If you look at what the forecasts were at the beginning of the year for the dollar, no one thought the dollar would be as strong as it was this year. You know, obviously we had the the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which aggravated some of the inflation pressures. Rate hikes in the U.S. came quicker and, you know, are projected to come even quicker still than expected. And so that's fueled the dollar higher, generally speaking. And especially in a stressed environment, a strong dollar means that you can lock in some of your dollar selling to fund global operations and help extend some of that runway. And we're talking double-digit gains in the dollar versus some currencies. So 
absolutely a new paradigm and FX can play a key role in reining in costs and extending that runway. I should have probably mentioned before that the new report is about the role of FX in getting ready and readiness for an IPO. Now, you actually pulled out a number of interesting stats in that report. I mean, we don't have time to go through all of them, but there was one bit that I particularly wanted to ask you about, which is you looked at tech company filings for IPOs between 2016 and 2019, and you found that only one in 10 companies hedged their FX risk using derivatives, and about half of them deployed natural hedging alternatives. Now, were you surprised by these stats, or was this sort of half of the course of what you expected, having spent now, as you said, five years at Silicon Valley Bank? I was a little surprised that the engagement with derivatives was as low as it was. I expected it to be low, but maybe not as low as it ended up being. 10%. 10%. Yeah, that's not a lot. And by the way, to be clear, those are venture-backed technology companies that IPO'd in those four cohorts, 2016 to 2019. We wanted to look at the attitudes and practices for FX at the S1 filing to give a sense of what companies are doing right as they decide to go public. So was I surprised? Yes, but not entirely. I mean, you know, pre-IPO companies are private, so you don't have the reporting responsibilities of a public company, so you don't have to worry about remeasurement risk and all the accounting risks. And if you think about it, that represents about half of all the hedging that's done by U.S. companies. So you take that out of the way. And second, pre-IPO companies have not fully established foreign revenues. Foreign expenses, yes, but foreign revenues, you know, not necessarily. These are technology companies. So about half in the sample, I believe, were enterprise software. So even enterprise software companies based in the U.S. that are global, they actually can, at least in the beginning, get away with pricing in dollars. So even though they have global revenues, the revenues are in dollars. So, you know, there's factors that are contributing. But the main takeaway from that is that there was a communication there and and half of them are deploying natural hedging alternatives, which to me says, okay, look, hedging is not for everybody. Certainly there are other priorities, you know, as you're filing to go public and want to IPO, but there is awareness. So let's build on that slightly, which is you talked about that FX hedging isn't for everyone. And you do note in the paper that having a fully fledged FX hedging policy might not be feasible for some of the firms that you looked at. So I guess my, my question is, how do companies looking to IPO determine whether or not, or at which point they should be implementing a policy. I guess it varies on a firm-to-firm basis. It's probably hard to answer that question broadly, but are there any broad guidelines in terms of, I don't know, levels of exposure, the number of currencies you're exposed to that sort of help determine whether you need a policy in the first place? Part of the gap can be explained by things that are very operational in nature. Like for instance, do you have access to exposure data overseas when you're a growing company? Do you have the infrastructure to be able to consolidate your balance sheets and look at your open exposure? When you are putting together a global FP&A plan, do you actually start thinking in foreign currencies or do you still think in dollars? Because believe it or not, in the beginning, right, we all think in dollars, regardless of how many currencies we're operating in. The budgets are in dollars and everything just gets converted again FX in the beginning is thought of as this operational exercise, sort of like managing cash, right? Cash on the balance sheet. But what we try to stress is think about FX as being strategic because it touches 
basically everything that you do on a global scale and even on a domestic scale. I think the point you make about thinking about FX strategically, I think it's such an important one. It's one that we come back to time and time and again in our conversations with people is trying to get beyond, I don't want to say a basic way of thinking about it, but just try and think about it in a deeper, more encompassing way of all these, like you said, all these different areas it touches and it can have a material impact. I think looking at your port, maybe one of, for me, the most interesting elements about it was you actually looked at the companies, not just pre-IPO, but you looked at them post-IPO and you found that the firms that were hedging their FX with derivatives actually performed better on a number of key profitability metrics that you laid out than those who didn't. Now, you were at pains to state and you were very careful to state that correlation is not the same as causality, which I think sometimes is a mistake that people can wander into if they're not careful. That being said, do you think just the fact that there is a correlation there is significant? Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of the piece as well. So thank you for asking. It is significant. So not to geek out too much on statistical bias testing. (laughs) We did carry out enough robustness tests and we were able to determine that it's not just size alone that's determining that the companies that hedge do better on these profitability metrics. And just to back up half a step for those that haven't read the paper, what we did is we took the Dow Jones small cap tech index, companies that have just IPO'd essentially, it's about depending on you know, when you look at the index between 70 and 80 companies. And so we split those into those that hedge and those that don't hedge. So again, we're not trying to determine causation here. We're just trying to extract observations from differences in performance from the bucket that do hedge with derivatives and the bucket that don't hedge with derivatives. So one particular reason, though, that the results didn't surprise me entirely is because we actually focused on earnings metrics. So we looked at EBITDA, EBITDA margin. We look at the volatility of EBITDA. So we're extracting information on firms that are actually focused on the bottom line as opposed to just growth, growth, growth at the top line. And so again, FX and FX hedging and prudent risk management policy is important in achieving those earnings bottom line driven metrics and the results supported them. So I think for me, looking back on both reports, the common thread through each was that you're finding that FX doesn't always necessarily get the attention that it merits within companies as they look to raise equity. Now, this is a mindset that isn't necessarily unique to those firms, but how challenging is it changing this mindset and sort of trying to get the attention away from where it is right now? Again, their primary focus is raising equity, building the business. How do you divert a significant enough of their attention away to this FX piece that might be having a material, potentially negative impact on their business? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. You know, in fact, my title here is not risk advisory, it's ambassador and cheerleader for FX, right? Um, (laughs) It's an interesting mandate. It is very challenging because actually the commonly cited reasons as to why high growth companies don't hedge are all very valid. We don't hedge because we're growing at 50, 60, 80%. So we can absorb a one standard deviation, 10% move, right? To To your point earlier. Yes, that's one reason. We don't hedge because we have limited finance treasury staff, right? We have no bandwidth to pay attention to this. We got 25 other priorities. We don't hedge because we lack the in-house expertise. We don't hedge because we don't know what to hedge, meaning we don't have access or visibility to data. 
or we don't have forecasts that can be reliable. How much time do you have, Caitlin? I can go through more reasons <laughs> why you know, firms don't hedge. Despite all this here, again, it's my mission to bring awareness to clients about the impacts at both the corporate level or the fund level. My approach is never to lead with hedging. So that type of product push, that works when you're preaching to the converted, right? When I was at Merrill, part of an advisory structuring desk, we were talking to clients that already were hedging large public companies or pensions and funds and, and, and so on. You know, we're not talking to those types of clients now. We're talking to clients that are trying to grow and build businesses, you know, change the world, have different priorities. My approach is to treat every client situation individually and to try to understand as much about the client's business as I possibly can. And then that way I can place the FX problem in context that truly resonates. So it's sort of reducing all the FX noise and modeling and volatilities down to what the company cares about. Hey, listen, if the dollar moves adversely, your runway can be shortened by three months. If you thought your runway was going to be 18 months, and now you're told that if the dollar moves against you by 10% or one standard deviation over, over whatever it is, your runway can be shut three months. All of a sudden now, I've been able to reduce the FX problem to something that resonates and is understandable by everybody at that firm, certainly including the founders in the C-suite. So once my model then, my approach becomes part of the business model, you're 90% there to changing the mindset. If you do this part right, the hedging actually, whatever strategy that you put on derivatives and even the hedge accounting is actually quite easy. You know, everything follows 90% of the time you're dealing with fairly vanilla products. But really, it's understanding the problem and putting it into proper context. That is the true art uh, and the true value add that, that we bring to our clients. Really interesting. Really interesting. I like the way you put that. Okay, so I have one final question for you, which is, you know, you spoke about preaching to the converted. What advice do you give to someone who is, uh, let's say, converted on an intellectual level? but doesn't know where to start. And what I mean by that is some of the reasons you gave, like, oh, maybe they don't have in-house expertise. Maybe they don't have the right visibility or data, but they think they want to be doing something about FX hedging, but they just don't know where to start. What is the first step for someone who doesn't have this expertise and data, et cetera, at their fingertips? What advice would you give to someone like that who thinks that perhaps they should be hedging? Yeah, no, absolutely. And treasury staffs that are lean, rely on your banking partners, obviously, once you have a framework established, the solution is actually quite simple. Leveraging technology is also something that's quite important, meaning to the extent that you can leverage technology and be able to have solid reporting from your ERP system, to be able to look at your exposures, to be able to analyze not just the existing monetary assets that may be causing FX noise, but also forecasting. Global FP&A process should have budget rates built into them, and there should be you know, a process for evaluating the impact of FX on actually forward-looking metrics as well. So I would say rely on your banking partners, outside resources, and leverage technology to the extent possible. And in fact, the actual hedging and the execution, because a lot of that can be automated, that's the easy part. It's sort of like my son plays soccer, right? And he wanted to get really good really fast when he was six or seven. So I said, look, we're going to continue doing the trainings and the games, but I want you to try to get to a hundred juggles. Just get to a hundred juggles because he can do three. 
you're not that good because you can do three juggles, all right? Get to 100, and I guarantee you that you're going to be better. And he got to 100 juggles. And it's not well, that then I can do it. There you go, yeah. And <laughs> it's not that he's going to do juggling at the game, but it's being around the ball and having a touch for the ball. And ultimately, you will get better. So the analog there is, look, have awareness. Take an active versus a passive approach to currency management. Have the framework to be able to analyze the potential impact. You do all of that. You do all your homework. You convey that in the S1. You're prepared for the IPO. If warranted, if the pain point is large enough, the hedging is quite easy. And obviously, it can be automated, a lot of it. Well, Ivan, thank you so much for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed your unique brand of cheerleading for FX. And uh, (laughs) I look forward to uh, reading more papers from you in the future. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Great. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. And to our listeners, please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.